Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. A former park ranger at Yellowstone National Park tells the story of a fellow ranger who was leading a group of hikers to a fire lookout. As the ranger was so intently telling his hikers that he was leading about the flowers and the animals that he was considered uh, that he was speaking about, he, he never considered the messages that were coming across the radio on his hip. Instead, he found them increasingly distracting, and so he turned his radio off. As he neared the the lookout tower that they were headed to, the ranger was met by this nearly breathless, panicked lookout who had run to their location. He asked why he hadn't responded to the messages that were being sent on the radio, and the lookout informed him that a grizzly bear had been stalking the group as they made their way to the lookout. The authorities were calling and trying to warn him, but he rejected, resisted, denied the warning. Anytime we ignore, resist, reject the message of God, we are putting ourselves and those around us in incredible danger. We are putting them at risk. We must hear, we must accept the word of God. And in truth, as I say that, you might say in your mind, you're overstating that. And what I would say to you today is, I'm not. You and I must hear and accept the truth of God. When we don't, when we won't, the consequences may be far greater than we can even fathom. Now, what I want you to observe with me today as we walk through this is your response to the word will determine your relationship with God. Your response to the word of God determines your relationship with God. And I think as we walk through this text, you can see that over and over and over and over again. There is this confrontation. There is this interaction with the word and what you do with it matters. So what will you do with the word today? Now, as we've looked at this book together Uh, This is the second longest book in our New Testament. The continuing story from Luke, beginning with the Gospel of Luke, and now continuing with the Acts of the Apostles. As we've referenced many times, the very first verse of Acts, he says, remember Theophilus, all the stuff I told you that Jesus began to do and teach? Now I'm going to finish that story. And I'm going to finish it with the people of God over a span of 30 years as the church begins, as the church launches. And frankly, folks, you're part of that continuing story today. The theme of the book is the power of the Spirit of God on the witnesses of God who go to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that throughout 
First in Jerusalem, chapters 1 to 7. Then in Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 to 12. Today we move on to the final section, to the ends of the earth. We even have a transition away from the church in Jerusalem to the church at Antioch. We'll see that throughout the rest of this book. So remember, as we walk through this, we'll see it in the first section and throughout. Your response to the word of God will determine your relationship with him. The first thing that we see in verses 1 to 12 is the appointment to ministry and the beginning of the ministry. Now, what Luke is going to do here is set for us the context of Saul and Barnabas, soon to be a name change, Paul and Barnabas for the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, The connections for the rest of this book are really to that reality of going to the ends of the earth. And we'll see that as we walk through this book together. He begins, he moves from the church at Jerusalem as kind of the launching pad now to the church at Antioch. And that will kind of become the sending church for Saul and Barnabas, soon to be Paul and Barnabas. That will be the place that they kind of anchor from. It doesn't mean Jerusalem's not connected. We'll see that in in two weeks. He goes back to, they go back to the church at Jerusalem. But this work, this ongoing spread of the gospel, the good news, this is going to be coming from the church at Antioch. Now in that church, Luke informs us, there are these gifted individuals. This must have been quite the, the church. He lists for us five uh, prophets and teachers that are in the church. Barnabas he begins with and Saul he ends with. We, we know them well. Barnabas we've seen him all the way from the beginning of Acts. Remember chapter 4 he gives that initial gift. Chapter 5 Ananias and Sapphira they give a gift and they lie right? But Barnabas that's where we're first introduced to him. We next see him in the life of Paul chapter 9 at his conversion etc etc. Simon Niger is the second in the list. And the word Niger actually means in the original black. And so it is believed by some that Simon or Simeon may have been from Africa. It is also believed by some, some think that this may be Simon from Cyrene that Luke references in Luke 23, whose sons Alexander and Rufus were later known among the believers in Rome. We don't know that for sure, but there may be connection. Lucius and Menaean, we don't, we don't have much about them outside of this verse, and we'll talk more about them in the q and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about both of them. So the church has these gifted men. They're worshiping together in the midst of their worship. God makes it clear that two of them are called to go out, Saul and Barnabas. The church, the idea of this calling is clearly a divine call. God has his hand. God is directing these two to go. Uh, I still think there is something to that today. I still think there is something to God's divine call in the life of an individual to do his work. Again, we'll talk more about that. In our Q&A, the church in response lays their hands on them, prays on them, and immediately they send them out. So the work begins on the island of Cyprus at this larger city, Seleucia. 
And there we're introduced to two characters, to two individuals. The first is Bar-Jesus. He's a false prophet. Luke tells us he's a magician. The other idea of the word magician there is a sorcerer. Uh, he actually gets two names in this text, though the text, uh, the story is not that extensive. Uh, Luke gives him two names. One is Bar-Jesus, and I'll, we'll talk more about why in a minute. Uh, the second name is Elymas. And then the second character we're introduced to is the proconsul, And we'll talk more about him in a minute, Sergius Paulus. In Acts, remember this description of uh, Bar-Jesus as a magician, as a sorcerer, it brands him. Luke has already used this word to talk, remember back in Phil, or with Philip in chapter 8, he runs across a magician. And the idea of this word in Luke is that this guy is a huckster, he's a fraud. He is pretending to be something he's not. So when they approach this city, where do they go first? And you, you see this, and we'll see this throughout the rest of the book. They go in verse 5 to the synagogues of the Jews. And John goes with them. John, Mark, he assists them. There's this comment. Then there's the comment in verse 12 about John. And that's really the extent of John's involvement initially. John didn't make it very far with Barnabas and Paul in his initial journey. The synagogue is a natural place to start to preach the gospel to the Jews. Why? Because that's where they're gathering. That's where they gather to worship. And the irony, and we'll see it again in a moment, the irony is they often invite Paul to speak because of who he is, uh, because of his credentials. They Literally, Paul will go into the synagogue and they say, hey, we got, uh, you know, Friar Paul with us, or Rabbi Paul with us, or whatever title they're going to give him. Uh, we, we got this, this amazing guy from Jerusalem, Jerusalem chain, trained at the feet of Gamaliel. We're, we're going to let him speak today, you know? And Paul gets up and explains to them from the Old Testament who Jesus really is, right? Uh, can you imagine as a rabbi who doesn't think that yet, hearing Paul teach that? That would be jarring, or it might convert you, you know, <laughs> I think that it did. We've seen that in Acts already. There were rabbis, there were teachers, there were Pharisees who were believing, and that was, is what was happening. So this is a wonderful place to engage, not just Jews, but also Gentiles who would be sympathetic to or interested in monotheism, the one God belief system of the Jews, and also the ethical system of the Jews that they lived out. And so this is a perfect place to engage them in the synagogue. This magician, Bar-Jesus, likely serves the proconsul Sergius Paulus in some capacity, whether he is kind of foretelling maybe what would happen. Oftentimes leaders like this would keep somebody, a, a magician, a sorcerer, somebody like this around them. Uh, not that Sergius Paulus believed everything that he had to say, but he believed enough that he kept him around. A proconsul was a Roman official. He ruled over a region or a province, and traditionally he did so under the control of the Roman Senate. So Sergius Paulus, and again, he's maybe informed by, remember, Bar-Jesus is Jewish. Luke establishes that 
for us. He says in the middle of verse 6, a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet. So our Jesus is a pagan, in essence at this point, a pagan Jew. So he, he would have known the Jewish background and history and truth. And maybe some of that had informed some of his conversations with Sergius Paulus. And so because of that, Sergius Paulus, he says, you know what? I want to hear more about this message that Paul declared in the synagogue. I want to hear more of what Paul said to all of these people in the synagogue. Well, our Jesus, Elymas, he doesn't want him to hear that. And Luke informs us, he gives us this second name intentionally. Uh, there's something to that. And again, we'll hit that in a second. But he is actively opposing. He actively sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So in essence, you have this advisor who's saying in your ear, don't listen to these guys. They're wrong. And you have the guys who are preaching the message. They are delivering the message of the word of God. And he's saying, ah, which one? Which one do I listen to? Now, that active opposition must have been evident in some way to Paul. Maybe he's whispering as Paul is speaking. I don't know. But Paul is filled by the Holy Spirit in such a way, Paul understands what's going on, and Paul says, here's what's happening, and here's what God's going to do to you. Now, if you think about it, this is miraculous on a lot of levels. For Paul to understand the manner in which God is going to judge, he's got to be in tune, right? Uh, he's he's got to be listening uh, to the Spirit of God and allowing him to work and so that he can hear and respond. And so Paul says, and here's where the name change comes, and I, I we talked about this in chapter 9, just reviewing briefly. Paul turns, Saul turns to Paul here, and really, Luke never takes us back. Why? Likely because the message is going to the ends of the earth. Likely, in the end of this chapter, we see a transition from primarily a Jewish audience to a Gentile audience. And because of that, the more broad Greek name, Paul, is used rather than the Jewish Hebrew name, Saul. Right? That's it. This isn't, God did not change this, Luke changed this. Likely because of the audience, and likely because of who Paul is engaging. All right? So that happens in verse 9. He's filled with the Spirit, he now looks intently, and he says to Elymas, he says, you are actually the son of the devil. Now, in one of those beautiful ironies that for most of us, because of our linguistic barrier, we don't see. But the name Bar-Jesus literally means son of Jesus. This is an irony. It's one of those ironies of the story. He is anything but the son of Jesus. He's anything but a follower of Jesus. He's anything but even gracious, kind toward Jesus and the message of Jesus. And so Luke kind of infers that here when he says, in reality, you're not the son of Jesus, you're the son of the devil, right? And he goes on and he says, you, you are an enemy of all righteousness, you're full of deceit, you're full of villainy, and you will not stop making crooked 
the straight paths of the Lord. So in essence, Paul says, you are doing damage to the message of God. You are doing damage to the word of God. And because of that, God is going to judge you. And that judgment is given out in verse 11. So now the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind. You're not going to see anything for a little while. Now, again, imagine the capacity to say that. The ability to say that the Lord is at work. This is what he's going to do. And immediately, immediately, he can't see immediately in the presence of Sergius Paulus. I mean, imagine this. You're trying to impress this guy. You're trying to talk him out of listening to these other bozos in your mind that have just walked into the room and are trying to steal what you've built with him over time. Right. That, that's exactly the way Elemus likely is looking at them. They're they're trying to steal what he's built. And so he's speaking against them in that moment. In front of him, you're blind. And literally, someone has to come to you and help you out of the room because you can't see. And with that, Sergius Paulus, he believes. Now, there's all kinds of debate as to what that means. What did he believe? What did he accept? Well, I think Luke is just presenting simply... His interest in verse 7, he sought to hear the word of God based on his hearing of the word of God and the evidence of the power of God in the response by Paul to Elymas, the power of God on display, I think he believed. I think he believed. He responded to the teaching of the Lord. And there it is again. Now, here's what I want us to consider very, very briefly. How do you respond to the teaching of the Lord? In in truth, many, many, many of us in this room, we have been hearing the teaching of God's word in theory for years and years and years and years. But what I want to genuinely ask you today is what are you doing with it? The, the teaching of the word of God is not a theory. It's not a good idea. That, that Yeah, I can acknowledge that. Folks, it's intended to transform the way that I live and, and what motivates me and, and what I long for. How are you engaging the teaching, the word of God? What are you doing with it? We can come and sit and hear But what are we doing with this truth? If it doesn't change you, it's empty and pointless. And the only thing in all truth that you are doing is bringing on yourself greater condemnation when you stand before God someday. What are you doing with God's word? And that truth will be the same thing and we'll see the result of it. In a sense, the judgment of rejecting it before we're done in the end of chapter 13. We go on. We go on in the ministry of Paul as they move to Antioch of Pisidian. And I want to show you this again. Paul, Barnabas, their companions, they move on. John Mark leaves them. Again, that's a a side note. Truly, it'll be a much bigger deal later on. But here it really is a side note because they continue on without him to Antioch in Pisidian. Now remember, they're starting out in Antioch 
So let me show you, initially, this map, this is from the CSB Study Bible. If you have one, you can look at it there. Uh, it's very small, so I, 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 I snipped it and made it a little bigger. So go to that second one, see if it gets bigger. Uh, there we go. So they're starting here, the red arrows, they're starting from here, and they're headed to, there's Seleucia uh, that Scott read to us about, and then Salamis is here on the island of Cyprus. On the other side is Paphos, and then they go to Perga, and Pamphylia is the region. Perga is the city. Here is where John Mark says, that, that's enough for me, I'm going home. And we don't know why. Luke doesn't tell us. Luke doesn't tell us, was it too hard or not too hard? They haven't even faced persecution yet, per se. They will at the end of chapter 13. But here, he says that's enough. Now remember, John Mark is from here. So he is a really long way from home, right? Uh, remember in chapter 12, they're praying at John Mark, Mary, her house, his mom's house in the middle of that chapter. She's in Jerusalem. He's now way over here on the other side of the world in some respects. And we don't know why he went home, but he went home. They go from here up to Antioch in Pisidia. This is where the rest of this account happens. And chapter 14 will happen over here. And, uh, and then they'll eventually, again, they'll make their way back to Antioch. All right? And we'll talk more about that again in the Q&A. So go down, if you would, again, look at verses 13 to 15. And there, John, John leaves them, but they go on in Antioch. What do they do? Sabbath day, they go to the synagogue again, and they sit down. And what do they do at the synagogue? And I find this interesting because as, as Paul is instructing Timothy on what's appropriate in worship, what does he say? One of the things that he tells him to do in worship, read scripture, read the Bible. What did they do in the synagogue? They read the Bible. They read from the law. They read from the prophets. It was part of their collective worship was to hear from the word of God. And so after that reading, who's ever in charge, the, the, the leaders in charge, they say to Paul, do you have a word of encouragement? Listen carefully. That word of encouragement, exhortation is important and it will come back up at the end of the story. I'll show you when we get there. All right. So here's his word. He calls them to attention first, and then he gives them a history lesson. The history lesson is from verse 17 down through verse 25. And we can run through that fairly quickly. Uh, that history begins with all of this redemptive, redemptive activity on the part of God from the time of Abraham all the way through the time of David. David, God establishes judges and kings, but... None of them can truly redeem the people. None of them can ultimately save the people. Not Samuel, not David, not Saul, not Moses. None of them. But in the middle of that, he says there is one. The offspring of David, God has brought to Israel a savior. Through the offspring of David, here is this savior who is that Savior? Jesus. And even John, not that many years ago, and at this point it probably is 20, 15, 18, 20 years ago. So some of them would have heard about John kind of uh, through history. John would have been uh, a little bit ago. Think back 20 years ago. Where were you? Right? Some of you weren't very old. 
Some of you were Caleb's age, right? Uh, some of you were not Caleb's age, okay? You know, But think back 20 years ago, what was going on? What did life look like? Well, that's John the Baptist. So when Paul harkens back to that, it's not like that's a recent thing. So Paul reminds them, John the Baptist, he came, he preached this repentance, this baptism of repentance. People responded. People said, John, are you the Messiah? And John says, no, I'm not the Messiah. And did you realize that the job of a servant is to loosen the sandals? John literally says, I'm not even worthy to be the servant of Messiah and loosen his sandals, the straps of his sandals. That's how inferior I am to him. This one is great. This promised one, this Messiah, this deliverer. He is great and he is worthy. So that history brings us to the truths of Jesus. And there in verse 26, Paul again, and I want you to note this. Paul begins his message and he says, hey, everybody listen. And then in verse 26, what's he do? Same thing. He says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. Again, listen Listen to the connection. Listen to the connection of Israel's history to the realities of the truth of Jesus today. Get this connection. Don't miss it. Right? So what are those connections? Well, he sent to us the message. The message there is literally the word that we get our word word from. Logos, right? It's the word of God. He's already used that several times. Here they translate it message of salvation. It's really the word of this salvation. This word of salvation's come through him. And then he review, review, reviews the events of Jesus' life. What happened in Jesus' life? He's accused at the end of his life of doing something wrong and needing to be crucified for that. And he says, well, actually, he didn't do anything wrong. We all know he didn't do anything wrong. But he was crucified anyway. They decided to kill him. And then he review, reviews the elements of the gospel. Look at what he says. And this is similar to 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 4, 5. Look at the elements that he gives. He says, and though they found in him no guilt that was worthy of death, what did they do? They asked Pilate to execute him. So the first part is Jesus is crucified. Second part, and when they had carried it out as it was written, carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree, the cross, and they laid him in a tomb. The second part of the gospel, Jesus was buried, crucified, died, buried. Third part of the gospel, but God raised him up. He was raised, right? Number three. And number four, and Corinthians lays this out for us, witnesses. There were those who had come down from Galilee with him and they saw him. They saw him alive. And, and Paul literally says, right now, today, they are in Jerusalem as witnesses to exactly who he is, who he was, what he came to accomplish. You see the four steps? Death, burial, resurrection, witnesses. Jesus rose. And Paul's going to sit on that. Paul's going to park on that truth of resurrection. Why? 
because it's so important. As we looked at on Easter Sunday, Acts has been called the fifth gospel, the gospel of the resurrection. Because that is where the power and confirmation and everything for a believer resides in that reality. Jesus is alive. That's where Paul goes. Look at verse 33 and 34. He says, this is fulfilled. This is fulfilled to us, his children. So God, he has this good news. He's promised this. He's made promises. And he'll talk about those promises again in a moment. But they've been fulfilled, how? In the resurrection of Jesus. As it is written, you are my son. This declaration by God confirmed in the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul goes on in verse 34 and reminds us again, he says, he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. Listen carefully. When Lazarus was raised by Jesus from the dead, ultimately what happened to Lazarus? He died again. And when he died again, he saw what? Corruption. He decomposed. That, that's, that's what this is talking about. It's talking about the process of decomposition when somebody dies. That's what corruption means. Paul is literally saying Jesus rose and he never saw corruption. And get this, he never will. He never will. That, that's why he says at the end there, no more to return to corruption. No corruption for Jesus. And listen to me, that's part of Paul's argument. It's part of his defense that the resurrection is true. It is a reality. And it's a reality that's supposed to impact you and me every day. Every week as we gather. That truth should ring in our hearts and minds. Jesus is alive. And he'll never, ever see corruption of any kind, right? He goes on, he makes another connection. I will give you, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of God. These are going to be given to those who receive, accept the work of Jesus. Now, Isaiah 55 is the quote here in verse 34, at the end of verse 34. And what it is affirming is the pledge of the mercies of God to David... It's specifically addressed to David, but it will be realized for all who come to God by placing their faith in Jesus. Now think about that. Think about the connection of Isaiah 55 to Isaiah 53. What do we have in Isaiah 53? Remember the suffering servant and by the means of the suffering servant, the blessings that are promised to David will be realized by all who come to God through the promised one, the suffering servant, Jesus, the Messiah, Savior, right? Those promises are for you if you'll accept the word, if you'll receive the word. He goes on, therefore, he says in another psalm, Psalm 2, or excuse me, 16, verse 10, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Oh, he comes back to that. Why does he come back to that? Because it's really important. Verse 36, remember he says, David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, 
he fell asleep and he was laid in the ground. He was laid with his fathers. And what happened to him? He saw corruption. Listen carefully. His point is Psalm 16 can't be about David. David died. David decayed in the ground. He saw corruption. We all know it. And remember when Peter uses this, he's in Jerusalem and could have very well pointed in the direction of David's tomb. Now he has said this years before. In Antioch and Pisidia, Paul can't do that. Because as you saw on the map, they're not close, right? But what the Jews there in Antioch and Pisidia knew was that David was dead and stayed dead and was still dead and there was no way there was anything left of him right now because he had seen corruption. So this isn't about him. Paul turns in verse 37 and makes his point. But he whom God raised up, he didn't see corruption. See, once again, Paul's point, and he's not going to let it go, from verse 30 all the way to verse 37, what is the theme? Resurrection. Jesus is alive. Jesus was raised. He did not see corruption. He has not seen corruption. He will not see corruption. He is alive. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because for believers, that is the foundation of all we believe. Jesus is alive. And he is not, he has not, he will not see corruption. That's Paul's point. And now Paul makes a very pointed application, and it's threefold. It's, it's beautiful. I love these sermons and acts because, uh, man, they're good, right? You, you go, go figure, right? It's scripture. You know what I'm saying? Okay, look at, look at verse 38. Here's the application. So Paul says, now, let it be known to you, hearer, let this be known to you. This is for you. And listen to me. Anytime we engage the word and we don't understand it's for us, we've missed it. Don't miss that. If you don't understand how the word is for you, you miss something because it's for you every time. Verse 38. So let it be known to you. Therefore, brothers, listen. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. Hey, you get that? I told you to come back up. Remember? Proclaimed? I told, I told you proclaimed was going to come back around. Right? There it is. There it is. I love that. Proclaim to you. Forgiveness of sins is for you. That message is for you. And by him, verse 39, everyone who believes, everyone who believes is freed. Everyone who believes is freed from this weight of the law. The third application is this, and don't miss it. Don't miss this. The third application is a warning. The third application is a warning not to miss the truth of Scripture. Don't miss the truth of God. What is that truth? The truth that he's speaking of in verse 40 and 41 is what the prophets said. What did they say? 
Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe. This is a quote from Habakkuk, and in the context of Habakkuk, the people are saying, how can you use a foreign, wicked, pagan, evil nation to judge us, your people? And God says, I'm doing a work that you won't even believe, even if it was explained to you. And Paul said, don't miss the work of God. I'm explaining it to you, but don't miss it. And folks, listen carefully to me, and I'm convinced of this. I genuinely believe it. There are people on Judgment Day who will be shocked at the line they find themselves in. Because they have told everyone and everyone perceives of them, certainly they know Jesus. Certainly they have a relationship with Jesus. Certainly. I mean, listen to them talk and brag and tell people what they've done or what they've given or etc., 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 etc. Or listen to their story. They've grown up in church their whole life. Listen to me. That does not matter. And that's about to be Paul's point. That's going to come up next Sabbath. We'll get there in a minute. But that's the message. And what Paul is saying, not only can you be forgiven of your sins, not only can you be freed from the weight of trying to do enough to earn God's favor, not possible, but you must beware that you don't miss God's truth because you think you know, or because of your heritage, or because of where you grew up, or because of what you think you've done, beware. Paul literally says it. Beware. Now I want you to think for a moment. First, have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you been born again? Have you been transformed because you believe this truth about Jesus? Number one. Number two, if you're a believer, are you living in light of your position in Jesus? Are you living in light of all that he's done? Are you living in light of the justification, which really is verse 39, the justification that you enjoy through Jesus? Are you living in light of that? Are you living as if your sins are forgiven? Or are you living still kind of in bondage to your sin? Like you're still controlled by your sin. Your sin is still kind of ruling your life. That's not how it goes. You're free. You don't have to live in bondage to sin or the law anymore. You're free to joyfully Follow Jesus. This is what Jesus has accomplished. So now we see the response. And this is what I want you to catch. Note the response of the people to the word. Don't miss this. Look at verse 42. So as they went out, Paul gives this sermon, right? And the people are going out from the service. The people begged. I love this. And this verse is one of those I wish, I wish I'd have done my own translation on because there's a couple pieces of it that are just too good, but you can't see it in the English translation. The first one is begged. You know what that word begged is? It's the same word that comes up. It's in a nominal form. 
uh, in the first one, in the second one, it is a verbal form. But they begged. What was that? What's that word beg? They exhorted. They literally go out of the service and they plead with Paul and Barnabas to come back next Sunday and tell them, it's translated, these things. You know what the word things is? It's the word rhema or rhemata. It's the word for word, but not general logos, the whole word. It's rhema, a specific pointed word. Do you know what they're asking Paul to come back and tell them about next week? Jesus. Come back and tell us about the forgiveness available in Jesus. Come back and explain to us more of what Jesus had accomplished in his life and death and resurrection. Tell us more about the witnesses, the specific words that you explain. Come back and tell us more. We want to hear. As you depart on any given week, what's your thought about the word? Give me more. I want to understand more. Or when you get home, do you toss this book on the shelf and you blow it off next week when you come back? Or for some, you don't toss it in on the shelf. You just put it in your pocket. And you don't open it up again until next week. I went to a restaurant yesterday. And talking to the waiter, he said, I can bring you this. It has a one-week shelf life. And I thought in my mind, it's been on the shelf for a week? I don't want that. I don't, I don't want that. That's too long. How many of you, that's exactly what you do with the Word? Folks, this book is given to change what we do and the way that we think every day. Every day. How do you respond to the Word as you leave this place? Their response was pleading. Give us more words from the Word. Verse 43 He goes on, and after the meeting in the synagogue broke up, it finished, concluded. I imagine there was some conversing and many other things. Many Jews and devout converts of Judaism, they followed Paul and Barnabas, who, Paul and Barnabas, as they spoke with them, the converts, these Jews and converts, they urged them to continue in the grace of God. And essentially what I think that means is this. They accepted the message. They heard they could be forgiven. They heard they could be freed. And they said yes to Jesus. Many in this room, you would claim that. And so my encouragement, my exhortation to you would be keep growing in the grace of God. Exactly as Paul and Barnabas urged them to grow in the grace of God. Verse 44 The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered, right? The word spread and people are like, yeah, hey, I want to go hear that. I want to go hear that guy. I want to hear about these words. And they gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled. Listen to me. You remember we've talked about this. The filling of the spirit. Remember back in verse 9? Luke says, but Saul, who was also Paul, was what? Filled with the Spirit. We got a contrast. 
because that's the same word. They were filled with jealousy. Paul was filled with the Spirit. Listen carefully to me. We're all filled with something. What are you filled with? Is it the Spirit of God? Is it jealousy? Is it some other sin? Anger? Lust? What are you filled with? Their jealousy, they began to contradict what Paul was saying and reviling him. And so Paul and Barnabas, they spoke boldly, fearlessly is the idea. And it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. So here's the fearless conversation that Paul has with them. Now think this through for a moment. If you're, if you're a Jew inherently in the first century, what do you believe about God? God has spoken to you. You are God's people. You are one of God's people. One of His chosen. One of His elect. And what does Paul say to them in verse 48? Look, look at this. Think this through. Paul, it says that he has to be fearless in explaining this. He has to be bold in explaining this. Look at what he's explaining. So here's the word of God. It's necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Why? Since you thrust it aside and judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. Because of that, we are turning to the Gentiles. You want to talk about a hard message to an unfriendly audience. That's it. Not only have you missed the meaning, the Word of God isn't for you because you've rejected it. God is turning from you. And the message is for somebody else. Wait, that's where we're going. Now think this through for a minute. And this is important that we grasp this, that we understand this. The Jews are filled with jealousy first. But then the response is Paul explains to them that the Word has to go to them first. Why? Why does the word need to go to the Jews first? Because the people, the Jews, they are the people of promise and they are the first to hear about what? The fulfillment of the promise. You see that? In essence, God is confirming that he is faithful to his promise. How? By giving it to the very people he promised it to first, even though they reject it. Even though they reject the son that came, even though they reject the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, the promised one, which he told them that too, that they'd reject. And they did. But Paul says, we have to give this to you. The rejection of the message about Jesus, Israel's messianic savior amounts to this. It amounts to a rejection of eternal life. And listen very carefully to me. What I want you to note is this. Depending on where you were raised, depending on the theology of the speakers that you heard as you were raised, you separate those two. I want eternal life. But I'm not necessarily that thrilled about this relationship thing. Not necessarily thrilled about having Jesus. I'm not necessarily thrilled about him being in charge of my life. Listen to me. Do you see the connection Paul makes? You can't have one without the other. 
You are literally rejecting, refusing, denying eternal life if you reject, deny Jesus. They go together. You can't have the one without the other. Life is in Jesus, 1 John, right? So Paul goes on, he quotes another scripture here, Isaiah 49. He says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, he uses that as confirmation. That text is confirming what he has just said. So when he says that, the Gentiles rejoiced and they're glorifying the word of the Lord as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And what he is suggesting here, I think, the idea is that the Gentiles are responding in faith. It's not that there's specific, the point I don't think Luke is making is that there's specific individuals that are chosen out. The point is the choosing the opportunity for all of the Gentiles to accept, to engage, receive this message. He goes on. In verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the region. But, but the Jews incited to devote women of high standing, the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drove them out of the city. But Paul and Barnabas, they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they went into Iconium. They went to the next city. And the work of God has begun in Antioch and Pisidia. And the disciples there were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And God's work continued and carried on. And that is exactly how God works. It wasn't about Paul. It wasn't about Barnabas. They gave the message and God accomplished his work. That's how God still works today. So hopefully as we walk through that, you can see your response to the word will determine your relationship with God. And what I want us to be cautious of today is this. For many of us, we kind of have our traditional perceptions and those frame our response many times to the word. For instance, uh, I don't think that applies to me like that. You can take that chance. But do you really want to? Because if you don't want Jesus, you won't have eternal life. It doesn't go reverse. It's not about pray this simple prayer and then whatever you do is going to be fine with God. God is not in insurance. Folks, that's insurance. God is in tra into transformation. And when you have Jesus, you will be transformed. And for some, your struggle, your genuine struggle in life, in your walk, is do you really have Jesus? Now you might, you might, but you need to start to respond to the word. If you have no desire for the word, you need to ask, do I have Jesus? Do I really have Jesus? How are you responding to the word today? Have you yielded in faith to Jesus? Are you following Him? Is your life being transformed? Are you submitting to the Word? We should, we can, we must, but we need help. We need help. We need grace.